Today is a bit of a bittersweet. Uh, for me, it's uh, bitter, and for you, it will be sweet. We're finishing, finally, our, our extended look at the letter to the Hebrews. I don't even know how long ago we began. It's probably I didn't have a beard or this many children. <laughs> I certainly didn't have this many children. What's this? 2021. Yes, 20. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, today we will complete it, and we're going to begin our completion by reading the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 13. We started this study uh, by reading the entire passage together. I don't know if you remember that day. Maybe you were as shocked as I was when I determined that that's what I thought the Lord was calling us to do, just to read the whole book. So we, we gathered, we sang some songs, uh, we prayed. I stood up here and I started in Hebrews chapter one and we read the whole book. Do you guys remember that? Uh, some of you looked like goldfish with your mouth hanging open. Some of you fell asleep. I would encourage you. That's how we began. We're not going to end the book that way. But after this, this sermon this morning, I want to just challenge you. Would you do me a favor? Do yourself a favor. Take some time. It only takes about 45 minutes. Take some time and listen to it again or read it one more time this week. How many of you guys are willing to do that? Raise your hand. It's a big commitment. It's only 45 minutes to an hour. Okay, some of you are holy. The rest of you will pray for you. We'll have an invitation at the end of the service. No, I'm just kidding. I do think it would be a great help to you. And so do consider that. But we will finish by reading the last few verses today. So Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 25. If you didn't bring a copy, you can either read it off the screen or you can just grab one of the hard black Bibles in front of you in the pew back there and you can turn to page 1,198 and read along with us. So look for that little verse, uh, little number 20, underneath the, the word benediction. Here's what the word of God says. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word, brief word of exhortation, I, oh, my, my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we do just stop and we ask you to bless what we've read. As we often confess, we have no ability to raise dead people to life. We really have no ability to even comprehend these things unless you allow us to. Unless in your grace and mercy, you, through the power of your spirit, bring to light these things. And so we just stop now and we ask that you would do that, do what we cannot and Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. The title of the sermon this morning is Benediction, and that's not demonstrating a whole lot of my own creativity. Uh, benediction is probably the, the word that's written right above verse 20 in your copy of God's word. Uh, benediction. We're going to understand this word benediction by, uh, beginning, to, by beginning our time together by uh, me giving you a clear definition of what benediction actually is, what it means. We'll move on from 
giving a definition, a clear definition of benediction, we'll move, move on to a close examination of this particular benediction. And so there are many benedictions in the Old and New Testament. Uh, there have been many uh, original uh, benedictions that have been written by many Christians throughout the centuries. And we'll look at one particular one this morning, the one that we've just read. And then we'll move from that close examination to a brief summarization, just a few minutes there. And finally, we'll end with a broad application, a broad application. And so first, let's look at a clear definition. Well, if you think of the word benediction, it's really a compound word that comes from the Latin that just really means good words. And Oxford defines benediction here probably on the screen for you. It defines benediction as the utterance or bestowing of a blessing, especially at the end of a religious service. That's a common thing, a benediction. In many liturgies and religious services, to have that time of benediction there at the end. And maybe you've seen that at the end of a program or a graduation or a wedding, something like that, and you didn't really know what a benediction was. And maybe you're like me for the first time, you're thinking, oh, I don't know what that means, but it's in this thing. And so when they get to that part, then I'll know because I'll see an example. And then they just pray or say something like that, and you kind of miss the whole thing and didn't really know what it was anyway. Well, there's all kind of benedictions in the New and Old Testament. I think probably the most popular, and whether you knew it was in number six or not, uh, you certainly have heard this before. Many of you have at least. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Uh, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Uh, that is a real benediction. I wasn't just reading it out. I was actually declaring that over you, church, and some of you received that uh, with an amen. And so that's one from the Old Testament, and today we're taking uh, our, our, from our passage this benediction, verses 20 and 21. Again, now, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And some of you said amen and received that one too. These are both examples of benedictions, of good words. And while I like the Oxford definition, I want to offer another one. And I hesitate to say better. That may sound a little prideful. But I think for our application in this context, I think there's a more fitting definition for you. Again, this one will be on the screen. And I encourage you to write this down and to think about it. In some ways, you'll see us connecting back as we work through our four main sections today. You'll see us tying back to this definition. A definition of benediction. A benediction is a declaration of blessing which accords with what God has already promised to do for his people. A benediction is a declaration of blessing which God, or which accords with what God has already promised to do for his people. It's a declaration of something God has already promised to do for his people. Let's just take a moment at the beginning of our time together this morning as we're considering this first section, the, the definition of a benediction. I want to just ask you to think about, if you can, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to, to reveal to you what sort of blessings or even curses you're hearing and maybe even believing this morning. Which, what are you hearing? 
When you open up the word of God, when you think about church, what takes place in a place like this on a Sunday morning, when you think about membership in a church like this, when you think about communion, what are you hearing? What's sort of spoken out loud in your mind, but in a way that nobody else can actually hear it? Maybe a better question to ask is, what sort of blessing are you declaring over yourself? What you may find out as you spend some time in God's word, asking the spirit of God to reveal things to you, you may reveal, or he may reveal, and you may realize that some of the things that you declare over yourself, maybe the things that you believe about you, your family, maybe you'll find out it's actually not true at all. And so I hope this morning that you'll see what God is declaring and what the writer of Hebrews is declaring, not just over his audience, but over us today as well. It's so beautiful. It's a declaration of blessing which accords with what God has already promised to do through Christ for his people. Maybe one way to think of benediction is to to realize that there are more than one ways to, to receive a benediction or to hear one. So you can hear one being said, but you can also see one being acted out. Just a moment ago, we witnessed the benediction. Now, there was nothing received by London other than maybe a, a chill. But it was a reminder, it was a declaration of a promise that God has already made, already completed over this young lady's life and in her life. And in that moment, we saw that Action of receiving of a sense, a walking in what God has already promised. See, baptism's in a sense a benediction, and in another sense, communion is. Communion is a time where we remember what God has already done for us. He's not doing it right now. He's already done it. It's already completed, and he's already promised to invite us in and welcome us. And in that moment, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim a benediction. A good word, not just to those who are partaking with us, but to all who are watching us partake of that very thing. In that moment, they're hearing a benediction. And I love being a part of services that involve communion, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. But let me say something. When you sing, when you stand and sing, you are declaring a benediction. Think of some of the words that we sang to each other and to God just a few moments ago. Think of those words. As you sang them, or as you heard, maybe you stopped for a moment, and I don't encourage you to stop a lot. Jeremy wouldn't like that, neither would I. But maybe every once in a while, stop and listen to the person singing next to you. And and consider that they're proclaiming a benediction over you. They're saying something's true about God and God's promise to you, and in that moment, you are believing it. And it's the same when our brother Chuck stands and, and reads the scriptures about how we who are dead in our sins and and covered in filth can be forgiven and have been forgiven. That's a benediction. And even now, the the reflections of, of this guy right here reading this word of God is in a sense a benediction. It's a it's good words, it's good news, it's gospel declared over you, inviting you deeper into relationship with God. And so benediction, a declaration of blessing which accords with what God has already promised to do for his people. 
That's the first section. I love that the the writer of Hebrews says, thank you for bearing with my my brief word of exhortation. And you thought maybe some of you in your own mind, I wish that maybe that guy was my pastor because he actually says a lot of things in very short, short time. But let receive that as a good faith deposit. We have four large or four sections of our sermon to get together today, and we've already finished one of them by finishing our definition section. And so now let's take a closer look, not just at the definition of what a benediction is, but zooming in and looking closely at this benediction, because many of them are similar, but they're all different. And so a close examination. First, I want you to notice there's five points I'm going to point out from this text. There's five points under close examination. The first is this, the God of the Bible is a God of peace. The God of the Bible is a God of peace. Do you see that in verse 20? Now may the God of peace. It's an interesting phrase and it's used often throughout the New Testament. We see it in Romans chapter 15. We see it in Philippians chapter four. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. The God of peace. Let's look at that word peace and think about it. Is God really a God of peace? Well, certainly he is because the scriptures say, but in what way is God a God of peace? Well, in my mind, which is, is, is weak, but I'm trying to rationalize this, how can God be a God of wreath, but at this, a rat, uh, a peace, but at the same time be a God of wrath that we just told our kids about and they're learning about right now? Shall we interrupt them and, and tell them, no, he is a God of peace, not a God of wrath? The reality is that he is both a God of peace and a God of wrath. Well, how can this be? Well, the first way to reconcile these two ideas together is that there is no rebellion. That there has never been a rebellion against God. The one who created this world sustains this world right now. The one who governs this world by his own essence, his own nature, which is holy. Has there ever been a rebellion against him? Well, certainly there has. We see it in the history books. We see it throughout time. We see it in the newspaper, people people rebelling against God. And if we're honest and we're brave, we'll look in the mirror and we'll even see there that there is a real rebellion against God right now. And so when we ask the question, is, is God a God of peace and is he also a God of wrath? How can both of these things be true? Well, we have to say that we don't reconcile these two by saying there really isn't a rebellion. No, in fact, there is. Sadly, there is. Every one of us have turned to our own way. Every single one of us have decided that we would like to be ruled, but not by God. We'd like to be ruled by our own whims and desires. And so there is, in fact, a rebellion. That's not an option. And so the second option is, well, no, there is a, there is a rebellion, but the king, the sustainer of the universe, instead of quelling the rebellion, he submits to the rebellion. We won't spend long on this time, but I can assure you that God will not submit to the rebellion. He will not turn and run. It's not an option. We can't say there is no rebellion. We we can't say that God would submit to our rebellion. And so the only option left is this. If there is to be a God of peace who is also a God of wrath, we have to understand that God is the God who squashes rebellion. And in his victory, he brings peace. This is what the scriptures teach us. 
That God is a God of peace because he invites his enemies to cease from their rebellion and come to him and to be forgiven. And those who will not submit to them will be crushed in his wrath. It's a sad reality that the scriptures make painfully clear to us. From the book of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. Really, it's a foolish act to think that God will not crush rebellion. That God will not judge sin. It's the equivalent of thinking that that God is only a God of peace and not a God of war. He's not a, a God whose hands are tied by some simple, trivial treaty. He's not a God of peace in the sense that he will not make war. He will make war, and in his war, he will bring peace. The scriptures are saying it. He is the head crusher. He's the king of kings from whose mouth comes a sharp sword, which, which he will use to strike down the nations. God is a God of peace. He's a God who will bring peace. Amen. Scriptures tell us that one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, and they'll do it willingly or unwillingly. He's the God of peace, not just because he crushes his enemies who refuse to humble themselves before him, but he is a God of peace because he gives peace to those who were once his enemies but receive his forgiveness. It's such a beautiful thing. Many of us, when we conceive of God, we think he's just some angry person who's demanding us to do right. Well, in reality, he is a God who is angry because he has been sinned against, and yet at the same time, he longs to have his people gathered to him again and to wash us who rebelled against him and to welcome us into his kingdom through Christ. But I want you to understand, too, that this This statement about God being a God of peace is not just that he is a God who will thwart his enemies and bring in those who have sinned against him. But when it says that he's the God of peace, it really is this idea that he's not just a God that has the absence of war, that brings with him the absence of war, but more than that, the fullness of joy. So it's not just the absence of something, but it's the presence of something. It's not, that, it's not just that God's not angry with us, but it's that he wants relationship with us and that in him we can have the fullness of what we long for in this experience called life. He's the God of fullness. He's the God of joy. And that's what's being declared in this benediction, that God is a God of peace. The, the God of the Bible is a God of peace. Let's keep looking at it, though. Here's the second observation I want to give to you out of this text, that the Lord Jesus is a real and living person. The Lord Jesus is a real and living person. Now, I want to, I want to make sure that I catch the attention of the young people in this room, and really the old people in this room, too. You can sort amongst yourselves who you think believe that to be. There is a tendency in our lives, young people, for when we hear about Jesus, 
And having never seen him, never actually held his physical hand or looked into his eyes to think that he is only something that we put on our walls and we color in and it's just a piece of art or it's an idea, it's some sort of a math equation, it's something that we can study. We're so tempted and we're, we're so prone to believe that, to forget that Jesus is actually a real person. He exists, he lives Even now, he is in the flesh, in heaven, seated by the Father. Look what it says there. Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. It's so important for us to remember that Jesus is not only a real person, but he's a living person. Yes, you say, well, he died, did he not? Well, of course, yes, Jesus did, in fact, die. But the scriptures say that he was raised And even now, he lives. He ever lives. And just as he lives, we too will one day live. The point here is not that that Jesus is not dead, but that he is very much alive. And that's an important point for a couple reasons. I'll just list out two. Number one, it's important that Jesus is not dead, but alive. Because the scriptures teach us that that proves that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf was in fact accepted by the Father. That's important. The fact that Jesus, and that's listed here. It's, It's pointed to here. By the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus was raised from the dead, it says. God accepted his sacrifice. This inaugural sacrifice that brought about the covenant. That's what triggered this. And so that's important. But look at number two. There's another reason. It reminds us that we still have a king who reigns victoriously now. He's not simply a martyr who we just think about and remember what he did long ago. But we submit to him presently right now. And by the way, I just want to take a moment and say this. Maybe some of you are willing to make a confession. I've got a few to make today. Here's the first. That sometimes I think benedictions are boring. I didn't, I don't now, but I used to. Maybe you're like me. You get to a benediction and you're like, may the God, blah, 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 blah. Okay, give me some content, right? Or maybe the, in that welcome, it's grace and peace. Yeah, 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 we've heard that many, many times. That's just something people say at the beginning or at the end of a book. The reason why we think benedictions are boring is because we ourselves in our own spiritual state are a bit dull. We're a bit dull when we read something as rich and as dense as a benediction here in 20 and 21. We should not speed up or skip over, but we should slow down and mine deeper. Benedictions can be boring because we're dull. They can be, they can be boring because we're ungrateful. So sad when we think about what is being said here, and we so often, like a child who's received a gift from a grandparent who lives in another state, doesn't stop to read the the label, the to or the from, just begins to tear into it, and without giving thanks, without recognizing who has afforded and gifted this present, they go on about their day enjoying that gift without any evidence of gratitude. Benedictions are boring to us because spiritually we're dull and spiritually we're ungrateful. 
tied into that is that we like to assume, we take things for granted, that the grace of God that's displayed here is ours because we are who we are, not because Jesus is who Jesus is. So this idea that Jesus is a real and living person, it's, it's very, very important. All of the promises, all of the, the, the instructions, all the encouragement and exhortation that we find in the book of Hebrews is connected to, it's afforded by the person who lives and breathes right now, Jesus Christ. And so when we think about our prayers, we may be tempted to think that if we can abide by some, some sweet algorithm that we will have the answer to our prayer. The reality is math equations make terrible companions. And they, don't, they make terrible, terrible kings and lords. They're cold and aloof. The Lord Jesus is a real and living person. No legend of a martyr who gives morale to a cult. That's not what this is. Again, he's the sustainer and creator of this world that we walk on right now. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. In him we live and move and have our being. And how is that possible? Because he lives and he moves and he has his being. We don't pray in the vein of a math calculation. If the digits are correct, we get what we, we asked for. We pray in the name of a living, resurrected Lord. And when we read a benediction like this and we see that the, the promises of God that have been made to us don't just come to us, but they come to us by way of the cross of Jesus Christ and through his resurrection. In 2024, my desire, and I hope yours is too, I'm going to invite you to take this as your own, is that it would, you would receive or, or have the same sort of desire that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And if you can't turn there, just write that down. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Scriptures say there on your screen, but whatever gain I had, the Apostle Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul says, I got a lot of things. I got a things that are possessions. I got a lot of things that you can't really touch, but they're, they're accreditations to my name. And he says, I, I count all those things as loss. Why? I'll give every one of those things up in order that I might Know Jesus Christ, my Lord. And that word know, listen, it doesn't just mean you, you have a history book or a theology book and you now know how to talk or think about God. Or to know and, and talk about Jesus, but it indicates an intimate, personal relationship that's increasing day by day between Paul and Jesus he says, I want to know him. I'll give everything else up so that I could spend more time with him. And again, he's not talking about a theology book. He's talking about a person. He goes on to say, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen to this, verse 10. He says, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I hope that's your prayer with me this morning. I hope that's your desire, that 2024 would be a year of you increasing in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ, who is alive and well, living and breathing, resurrected and ruling. I hope that's your prayer. We don't just have this living now, King, this living Lord, but What does it say about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it says that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Man, I I really wish that we could make this long sermon into like a much longer sermon and look at Isaiah 40 and Ezekiel 34 and 37 because it's it's incredible. Write these down. If 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 your interest is peaked, Isaiah 40, verse 11, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, and Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Again, Isaiah 40, 11, Ezekiel 34, 23, and Ezekiel 37, 24. It's incredible how much there is, a, how, how great a connection there is between the benediction that we're reading here in Hebrews 13 and those Old Testament passages. It's incredible. And I wish, again, I wish we had the time to look at it, but we don't. But Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep that's been prophesied in those passages. He's a fulfillment of them. And what's been said of of the Lord in Psalm 23, that psalm that so many of us know and love and find comfort in, is, is a psalm about Jesus. He is the great shepherd. We have no need. Why? Because he's with us. He's protecting us. He's providing for us. He's walking with us. He's giving us direction. I love that. He's the great shepherd. Do you know why it says great shepherd there? Hey, that's, that's so good. Because he's great. And, and you know why else it says great? Because it wants to help you to understand, those of you who have under shepherds, that the under shepherds that shepherd you are not the great shepherd, and they're not great. You know, this guy right here, he stands in contrast with the guy that's described here in these verses. I am a shepherd, but I am an under-shepherd, an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. Maybe you already know this, but the word shepherd really is what we, where we get the word pastor. When you say pastor, you're saying shepherd. But you're not saying great shepherd, and many of you know that all too well. I'm not a great shepherd. Brett's not a great shepherd. Chris is not a great shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd. And one of the beautiful things that we can see here is that the the writer of Hebrews, who is himself a shepherd and of sorts over these people, at least in some apostolic sense, he says in verse 18, pray for us. He tells the recipients there, the Hebrews, he says, pray for us. We need something. We're weak. We're failing. We, 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 we're sure that we have a clear conscience. We, we want to have a clear conscience. We think what we're doing is right and for God and for you. But at the end of the day, we need your prayers. How do we differentiate between a great shepherd and an under-shepherd? Well, maybe this is a good way to think about it. We pray to the great shepherd that he would help and strengthen the under-shepherds. We don't pray to the under-shepherd 
so that we can get to the great shepherd. It's the great shepherd who is our mediator. It is the great shepherd who provides us salvation. It is the great shepherd who never makes mistakes. It is the great shepherd who, in his own ability, completely obeyed the Father, something that we could never do, something this under-shepherd has been unable to do. And by the way, we haven't had the time because of various circumstances uh, to really dig down deep into some of these applications of this, but I do just in passing want to ask you this question. The scriptures say that you are to pray for your shepherds and that you are to submit to your shepherds, and I just want to ask you, who are your shepherds? Who are your shepherds? I hope that you'd be willing to have a conversation with me or at least to have a conversation with somebody in this church about what does it mean, what is the scriptures instructing us to do here as we pray and submit to our shepherds, pray for our shepherds and submit to them. Moving on through the text, though, I'll leave that there. Third observation as we take a close examination of this benediction is this, that the covenant that God made with us is eternal. The covenant that God made with us, with his people, is eternal. We won't park here long, but you gotta notice an important part of this benediction is that the blessing that it highlights is not a passing one, but an eternal one. Some of you enjoyed when your children were younger going to certain restaurants because kids eat free. When you look at the, uh, the, the, the fine print, you find out for many of them that they're not allowed to eat uh, for free past the age of 11. And so you have a moral dilemma in front of you. What are you going to do? Well, that covenant, that promise that they made to you has expired. And so as your child celebrates that they got that new Nerf gun or those ballerina shoes, you are mourning the fact that you can't go eat free or deeply discounted on Tuesday nights any longer. Or maybe it'd be helpful to think about your car warranty. Some of them 10 years, 100,000 miles, sounds pretty good. Lots of comfort, lots of joy, lots of hope. Until one of those periods are expired. And then, like smoke in the sky or dust in the wind, the covenant is gone. It's over. And I promise we wouldn't park here long, but when you think about the covenant here, remember that the the promises of God that he makes with his people are eternal because they're not based on you. They're based on the work of Christ. That's really important. The fourth observation, we're moving right along here at a great clip. I appreciate your your patience and bearing with me in my brief word of exhortation. Number four is this. The good that you do is God working in you. The good that you do is God working in you. This is part of the blessing, part of the benediction. Look at verse 21. It says, that God would equip you with everything good. And that word equip means to supply you with what you need to live the Christian life. When God calls you to a task, he gives you the things that you need to accomplish that task. I love it. God is equipping you with everything that you need. What does it say? That you may do his will. When Jesus, the living shepherd, equips us, he provides us with every good thing that is needed to do God's will. There's no need to supplement that. 
Everything that you need, you have. Everything that you need to obey God, to please God, has been provided to you in Christ. Nothing needs to be added to it. It's comprehensive. But then notice it goes again. It says, equipping you with every good thing that you may do his will. And then it says in another way, from another angle, working in us, God is the subject there, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So from one side, on one plane, we look at it and we see, we understand that God is giving us what we need in order to do his will. But on another level, he is actually doing in us and through us that which is pleasing in his sight. The things that we do, the good that we do is God working in us. It's a powerful, powerful message in here for us. It reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5. I, re- I referenced it a few moments ago. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 25 says, Now may the God of peace himself, there's God of peace himself, sanctify you, set you apart, make you clean and holy, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a tall order. That's a benediction too. And at this point, it makes me feel a little uneasy. But it says in verse 24, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He will surely do it. It's another benediction, another powerful message, echoing the same point that we're looking at right now, that what God commands of us, what God calls to do us to do, he actually accomplishes in us. It's him working. And really that segues beautifully to the fifth point here, though, of this observation. And that's this, that all the credit belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says there, plain as day, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all his. We can't take credit for it. Look again at the definition of benediction. Look there, it says, a benediction is a declaration of blessing which accords with what God has already promised to do for his people. I want you to draw a little carrot above above in between the words do and for and I want you to write this through Christ in some way I want you to signify that that benediction for us is promised through Christ it's fulfilled through Christ and therefore who is it to get the glory who deserves the glory in your life when God accomplishes even in small part in parcel, what he has promised to do. Who gets the glory? Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ does. It's through his strength. It's not I, but it's Christ in me, Christ in you. Notice that the end of this benediction is the word amen. We talk about that a lot. And we say it a lot. And oftentimes, it's one of those things that we don't really think about. But amen means it's true. I agree. Now, I'm going to ask you, I want you to really think about this in your own life, the observations that we've made from this text. The God of the Bible is a God of peace. The Lord Jesus is a real and living person. 
The covenant God made with us is eternal. The good that you do is God working in you, and all the credit belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, can you say amen to that? I hope that your life even, not just your your words, but mine too, that our lives echo an amen over that, that we're marked with it. Now, we've briefly defined the, the term benediction. We've I guess you could say we've closely examined this benediction, and now we're going to move into a brief summarization. Here it is. Maybe you could even use it as the main idea this morning. The God of peace will equip us to do or to do his will through the risen Christ, our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Through the risen Lord, our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Man, I, I totally butchered that, didn't I? It's still It's still good. <laughs> Let's try it again. The God of peace will equip us to do his will through the risen Lord, our great shepherd, Jesus Christ. It's a declaration here. Just as we saw a moment ago in the beginning as we looked at the definition of a benediction, it's a promise of God declared over his people according to the work of Jesus Christ. It's a declaration, and I hope that you believe it. Now, By way of transition from this brief summarization into the final application, I want to just say something to you. And this is where it's really, uh, our faith uh, as as a church here is, is distinct from several other denominations. You see, I don't think that I can give you a blessing. I don't think that I can actually bless you. Somebody might say, well, hey, Josh, Pastor Josh, since you're the, the pastor in the room and we're about to eat, why don't you, why don't you declare or, or give us a blessing? Bless this food here. The reality is I, I can't do that. I, and, and here's something else. Not only can I not bless you, but I can't give you what you already have. Some of you are looking for a blessing, but you already have all of the blessings. You don't need any more blessings. You have every blessing that there is already afforded to you, given to you, promised to you, manifest in you through Jesus Christ. And some of you don't believe me, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna prove it to you. Ephesians chapter one. If you got your copy, turn there. Ephesians one, verse three. Is that on the screen? Here it is. Wow. Look at that. Look what the scriptures say. In Ephesians chapter one, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think about that right now. Think about the tense of the blessings here. When were those blessings given? When will they be received? It says here, who has blessed us, God has blessed us in Christ. That's fantastic. To what degree? Is it comprehensive? It is. With every spiritual blessing. Some of you think, well, I I wouldn't mind having a scarf that's been blessed. I wouldn't mind having a a cup that's been blessed. I wouldn't mind having a a baptismal gown that's been blessed by this person or that person or maybe the, the archbishop or maybe this pastor or maybe even the pope. And the reality is the pope can give you nothing, Christian, that Jesus has already given to you. He can't simply remind you of those things. 
And that's exactly what the author of this book is trying to do for you. He wants to remind us of what God has already done through Jesus Christ. And so now we land the plane here in this broad application. What are we to do with this benediction that you have guilted us into working slowly through? What are we to do with this benediction? Well, first, I want you to think of this. That the whole message of the book of Hebrews is a call for you to have confidence in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who is our great shepherd. That's the point of the book. Don't turn away. Don't lose confidence. Don't abandon Jesus' people. Continue to lean in. Continue to trust. Continue to look for his appearing, for his return. Don't stop. Have confidence. That's the whole point of the book. And so what should we do? How should we apply this beautiful benediction? Well, we should realize that it's a summary, an incredibly genius Some would even say divine. That's my position. Summary of this great book, this great letter. When we think about all of the points that have been made, it brings us to do exactly what this writer is doing, and that is he's exercising what he believes to be true, what's been said throughout the book. He's saying all of these things are true. I believe them, and now I'm declaring them over you. I'm not conferring. I'm not originating a blessing. I'm simply telling you what God has already told all of us. I'm reminding you. I'm declaring it over you. And here's why I'm doing it at the end of the book, because you may have forgotten. I said a broad application, and really I've got two applications on two different levels. The first is a personal one. It's a broad application. We're not going to get into the weeds, but I just want to ask you on a personal level something I already asked you. What are you hearing today? When you turn your television on, when you open up your phone, maybe in the morning, hopefully not the first thing that you do, what are you hearing? What's being declared over you? And what are you you actually holding on to and believing? Each and every one of us are being, barrage, are being attacked with a barrage of statements of both blessings and cursings, and many of them inconsistent with Scripture, inconsistent with what Jesus has done for us. And I just want to ask you to take a moment right now and ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you, reveal that to you. What sort of blessings are you holding on to that are not biblical? Which ones are you missing that are yours? Which of the curses have you been listening to and believing that are not true? And what are you going to do with them? I would challenge you on a personal level to find a way, and I would love to help you find that way, but to find a way to remove the influence of these curses that are not true, these lies from Satan that say, hide from the light, hide from community. When you make a mistake, don't go to church, don't talk to your friends, don't confess your sin. I'd love to help you, or I'll pray for you even, to find rhythms that would allow you to be reminded of the true benediction that has been given to us right here. That God, the God of peace, 
who brought again the dead from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. He will equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. What a beautiful promise that we need to be reminded of. And I, I hope that you find personal ways that you can be reminded of these blessings that Jesus has already given to you, Christian. And maybe again, on a personal level, you're here today and you're saying, I, I just don't know about these blessings. Maybe, maybe even today, this is the first time you've heard anything like this. Man, I would love to have a conversation with you. I'd love for you to ask the person sitting next to you. Uh, or maybe it's even somebody that you know. Maybe they brought you here today. They invited you. I'd love for you to, to ask them what it would look like for you to place your faith in what Jesus has done for you. And to have the same level of confidence that I do and so many others here in this room in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be a fantastic thing? So that's a broad application on a personal level. And now I want to make a broad application on a collective level. How can we apply this benediction to our life as a church? Well, I, I can't think of any better way than for us to declare a benediction and insert a benediction at the end of every service moving forward there's so many of them in the new testament there's so many of them in the old testament and oftentimes we'll end our communion time almost every time we end our communion time with a declaration of a benediction a declaration of a blessing and we're not just going to reserve that for the day, for the days that we take communion but we are going to begin to indulge in these great blessings every single day that we gather every lord's day and why will we do that? Friends, I want you to know that there is a message. There's a set of messages that are lies. That parade around some of them as blessings and others overtly lies that are curses. But we as the people of God, we can claim, we can declare what God has declared for us. And may the God of peace who brought again from, Lord, from the dead our Lord equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He's promised to do that already. He will do it. And so as you hear that declaration, as you hear that promise of blessing, I pray that in your hearts, by faith, you will receive it. And in that way, be strengthened by it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this rich book, the book of Hebrews. God, we thank you that you and your kindness saw fit to encourage a group of Christian Jews there in the first century. And in your kindness, you preserve that word, not just for them, but for us. A word that calls us from loving and worshiping ourselves, but to something much greater, more sure, and full of more joy worshiping Jesus, looking unto him, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, we pray that that is exactly what we'll do as a church. We pray that the mantra on a collective and even an individual level of this body would be that we want to know Christ more. We're not satisfied with hearing about him. We're not satisfied with winning arguments as to who he is and what attributes we'll ascribe to him. Father, help us not to be satisfied until we fully know Jesus face to face. That's our hope and that's our prayer. 
that we would look unto Jesus. We ask all this in the name of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Amen.